Welcome to the Gender Hacienda, a podcast which looks at the gender history of the United States of America. My name is Katie Myerscoff and I am a PhD candidate in American Studies at the University of Manchester. I am an avid podcast listener and I have given, sorry, gotten <laughs> so much inspiration and of course information from podcasts such as American History 2, The Whiskey Rebellion, Ben Franklin's World, In the Past Lane and of course Backstory. And so much so that I wanted to try and record my own. So what is in a name? Why is my podcast called The Gender Hacienda? Well, in truth, I wanted to call it The Gender Agenda, but that name was already taken. So given that I am a proud Mancunian, I picked The Hacienda. Not only because it rhymes with gender, but because it was a very famous, maybe infamous nightclub of the Manchester scene in the 1980s and very early 1990s. So there you go. Gender will certainly be on the agenda in the gender hacienda. That's a tongue twister for you. So as for the aims of this podcast, I certainly want to explore some of the historiographical benefits and the challenges of using the lens of gender to help in the study of American history and contemporary society. In thinking about why gender history is so important and should be integral to the study of history, I return to Joan Scott's article, Gender, a Useful Category of Historical Analysis, which was published in the American Historical Review and her equally illuminating book, Gender and the Politics of History. Although the article is over 30 years old and the book is very nearly 30 years old, They are both well worth returning to. Scott argues for the need to examine gender correctly and in context and to consider it a historical phenomenon produced, reproduced and transformed in different situations and over time. By doing so, we will arrive at a clearer understanding of the constructions of femininity and masculinity and hopefully we will start to see how hierarchies of gender are constructed and legitimised. So gender history presents critical challenges and one of those is how to avoid ghettoising his story or her story. And this can be done by looking at how gender intersects with and is hugely significant to the construction of other concepts and social categories that we study in history. So, that of power, class and race. By thinking about how gender intersects with those concepts, uh, we can hopefully re-examine those very concepts. So, that's a win-win, I think. This podcast is hopefully going to be interdisciplinary, just like the field of American studies. In this first episode, I um, talk about myth models of the early Atlantic world with Dr. Matthew Stallard. In the future, I do not envisage approaching our topics chronologically. And as you will hear in a moment, I also introduce the Meet the Scholar segment, which is designed to do 
exactly what it says on the tin and introduce some of the scholars I know who will briefly discuss some of the exciting work they are producing and the ideas they are engaging with. So that's enough of an intro. I hope you enjoy and will subscribe to The Gender Hacienda. Yay, so welcome, Dr. Matthew Stallard. Thank you. The living legend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so every podcast episode, I wanted to do a section about Meet the Scholar, where people talk about their work and their inspiration. So you're, you're my first victim. Thank you. Great. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds slightly scary, but yeah. You're a guinea pig. All right. Um, so, meet the scholar, let's meet you. Hello. What, what was your PhD about, Matt? It was on New Orleans in the uh, 1820s and 1830s, looking at class and race, um, using census documents, city directories, uh, maps to analyse uh, living patterns and statistics on, on class and economic activity and demographics and then trying to understand how that actually played out in the real world in people's lived experiences and relationships. Sounds good. <laughs> so how did you find out about the lived experiences? I did my best to scour through newspapers, travel logs, um, diaries. Um, I had a look at um, I tried to analyse the sort of compositions of households and um, things like apprenticeship and um, slave sales, slave purchase contracts, and try and sort of you know um, expand from those and try and sort of um, you kind of speculate, but sort of educated speculation based on them with a little bits of of written sources as well. Great. So, Matt, why were you interested in this topic? Because Natalie told me to do it. <laughs> um, well, obviously you have to, when you're doing a PhD, you need to find something that's going to sustain an original piece of work and something that's going to be you know, interesting enough to keep you writing about it for three, four, five, however many years, isn't it? So... New Orleans, New Orleans is great because it's so sort of diverse and it's got its French, it's Spanish, um, it's African um, influences and then it became an American uh, territory and state and had in, uh, lots of migration inwards from all over really mm. so and it's 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 cultural and social and racial makeup particularly in that early 19th century period, but obviously going backwards and to the present day, so sort of individual, particularly like the size of the the free population of colour in the city compared to pretty much every other American mm, city. Mm. Yeah, and of course, I suppose the availability of your sources is driving that. You had lots of census material, didn't you, to look at? Yes, there was, there was plenty of stuff um, that was online that you could get hold of in terms of your census stuff and a lot of newspapers so it was something you could do in general quite remotely without having to spend lots of time there because you know, I didn't have that much money. Still don't. 
okay, so we talked a bit about your source material. So l- let's think about gender roles now. How how did gender roles manifest themselves in your study? Particularly for me, I, I ended up with after working on those census materials in particular, I ended up focusing quite a lot on white men and what what it meant to be a, a white man who was respected and actually had some sort of social status and that sort of came down to socioeconomic um, aspects so you know the amount of money they had the job that they did the amount of capital they were able to build up um, but that also sort of had a knock-on for um, more sort of cultural um, representations of masculinity so being a master whether it was master of a household master of apprentices or mm-hmm. other other um, dependents being a master of enslaved people um, being a master of, of employees and what you find is that a great deal of white men particularly the young white men who were sort of migrating into the city at the time hadn't achieved property owning status hadn't been able to form a family or, mm-hmm. or find a wife um, often didn't have regular or very well paying employment um, large numbers of them couldn't vote even into the 1820s 1830s so that creates a particular dynamic particularly in a city with such a large enslaved population and a large uh, free population of colour and a city where there are also lots and lots of um, other white men who are actually becoming very very rich mm. off the back of mm. the labour of enslaved people or often are you know wage labouring mm. white white migrants as well so you're you're looking at frustrated young white men aren't you and what becomes integral to their understanding of masculinity is ownership of slaves oh that's what they aspire to yeah that's it or that or the yeah and the sort the lack of it leading to um, either class tensions with those, you know, big slave owners, or racial tensions against, you know, enslaved people, or often against uh, the free men of colour who are in direct competition mm. with them for jobs. Um, and there's this interesting sort of dynamic of being, in, on the one hand, sometimes in competition with enslaved men for jobs, particularly for Irish migrants um, in the 1820s into the 1830s and 40s. But when they're in competition with enslaved men for jobs, they're also sort of technically in competition with the people who own those slaves, mm-hmm. who are usually you know, a lot better off than them and can sort of not only sort of outcompete in them within the white part of society and white economy, but can also use their ownership of enslaved people uh, to sort of doubly um, doubly make thing make the economic position and the social position of uh, those poor white men even even more sort of tenuous. Mm. So lots of intersections between gender, class, race, and power, which hopefully we'll discuss in this and other. Mm-hmm. Future episodes. The top four, the four main, <laughs> <laughs> the four subjects. Yeah, you've got that covered. Um, so yeah, you you finished 
this year? Last Was it last year? I submitted in September last year, so like a year ago I became a free man. But then I had to do a viva and they gave it me back. So then I wasn't free for a couple of months, but then now I am yeah. free. You're free? Free to get locked into the rest of my life writing more stuff with deadlines. Yeah? yeah. So it's not put you off? No, it hasn't. It's it, it's a big relief to be done. But, um, you know, it all it all starts again. You start looking for the next project, the next thing to do. But I don't think anything's ever going to be quite as pressurised. It's like a dry run, isn't it? I don't know. I haven't written a book yet. <laughs> the PhD's like a dry run for the rest of your career, isn't it? I guess. I don't know. Oh, no. I don't know what that says about me. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so what, what would your top tips be for incoming PhD students? I think, I, for me, because I was, I didn't have any funding, so I was, I did a combination of full-time and part-time study. I worked full-time during part of it. I worked part-time through the rest of it, doing sort of various jobs all over the place. And I think, particularly for those people who haven't got any funding behind them, try as much as you can to sort of give yourself a break and do what you can do. Mm. And, you know, try be get the university to be as flexible as it can particularly if you're paying for this yourself you're paying for this privilege you know make it work for you obviously do the work mm. <laughs> don't like you know take the mick and use it to get loads of time off and not do anything because that's not really very productive mm. but make it make it work for you because particularly if you're paying for it off your own back and you're having to graft away in other places to do it make sure you know you do it the way you want to do yeah, it yeah yeah no it's it's a good tip because i think we often forget to look after ourselves don't we and um i think as you say in this pressurized environment um that can be really the first thing to go can't it yeah and and also um as well as that i think there's there's a, a standard sort of expected way that a PhD works, particularly if you're someone who's doing it within three, three and a half years. You know, there's a certain milestone you get to at a certain time and, you know, it progresses you, you know, in theory quite smoothly from your sort of your initial reviews and your sort of literature study into your first chapter, your second chapter, your third chapter and you, you know, build it up slowly that way. Whereas that doesn't always work if mm. you aren't working full time for three years on it. But sort of, as long as you're confident that you can get something in at the end that works, make it work for your your pattern, your availability. Yeah, good. Positivity, I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's positivity afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it was always like that during it, but yeah. Um, great. Yes, so we're here today to discuss an article by Pamela Scully that appeared in the Journal of Colonialism and Colonial History way back in 2005. Yeah, ages ago. I know. What was I doing then? Still student. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this article is called Malinson, Pocahontas and Krotoa, Indigenous Women and Myth Models of the Atlantic World. So we, we've both read this in preparation. Yes. What, what did you make of this article? It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? I, uh, it? It does really make you think about 
the way in which um, indigenous women, um, you know, were essential to the the colonising and conquering uh, um, elites. You know, you know, without them, they wouldn't have been able to sustain themselves economically and in terms of their labour, but then also in terms of actually that justification for and that justification and creation of that narrative of why where these um, societies came from mm -hmm. it wouldn't you know it wouldn't work without it would it in the way that we yeah currently conceive it the, the project of conquest gender was absolutely essential um, to that and also I, I thought this article was really interesting because it talks about the process of history of doing history how it's recorded how we're remembering things what happens when we have gaps in that history? What falls into place then? And as we see in this article, it, it's about power, isn't it? And it's about appropriation and more justification for that conquest. Exactly, yeah. And who's doing the recording? Mm, mm. Well, yeah, yeah let's, let's start at the very beginning. Um, it's a very good place to start. <laughs> Didn't Mary Poppins say that? I said I did she? <laughs> I thought she was about all the medicine and the sugar. Yeah. No. Sugar, that was from the New World as well, wasn't it? Right, so in a nutshell, um, Pamela Scully's article looks at the discovery and exploration literature of much of the early modern period. And so she's looking at Pocahontas, so from Virginia. Malinson was from uh, Mexico. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether it was called Mexico there. Well, we could have that discussion now if you want, or another day. And um, Krotoa was from the Cape um, colony, South Africa now. Mm -hmm. And Pamela Scully says that actually these women share... Sorry, the, the narrative of these women um, share a lot of similarities. She talks about a model, a myth model, that you can see in the Atlantic world. So... Let's talk about what that myth model was. Um, how who's who's writing it? Well, it's white blokes, isn't it? It's the white conquering blokes who obviously you wish, you know they're 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 trying to justify what they've done, and also you know as as blokes tend to do, they blow their own trumpet a bit and um, uh, you know try and paint themselves in the best light they can and all their heroic and amazing exploits. Mm. So for the Pocahontas um, myth model, it's John Smith who's who's writing it, isn't it? Yeah, it is John Smith, um, who, as he's, uh, yeah, he's an interesting character, isn't he? Pretty, you know, he sounds like a pretty sort of brutal um, guy, but also, if you're looking at him in a sort of objective way of the way in which he kind of took control of that colony and made it work when it was clearly falling apart. Kind of, you know, he's effective in a very brutal, violent, yeah, misogynistic brutal. and uh, <laughs> conquering, murdering way. Yeah. So the myth model, part of it is about masculine adventure, isn't it? Appealing to these men's egos. Um, and also they buy into the idea that indigenous people see them as gods. Um do you think that's correct, or do you think that's just what they want to see? I think what it, it, the initial 
sort of idea of that kind of stems a bit from Cortez, doesn't it? Because he he sort of very clearly says that was it the Aztecs thought he was um, you know the incarnation of Quetzalcoatl or what have you, and then you know his his narrative being such a foundational one that I'm sure most of those subsequent explorers would be aware of. I guess they kind of want to you know, they kind of imbibe that and. You know. And rip it off to a certain extent, <laughs> isn't it? This it's mm-hmm, a it's a mm-hmm. model for a reason. It's constantly mm-hmm. being repeated. Yeah. If you don't have that same model, you, you've in some way failed as this mm-hmm. masculine uh, yeah, conqueror. That's it. And the idea that um, you know the the indigenous people are so naive as to think like, oh look at these people with all these technologies and their horses and ships, like oh they must be gods. That that idea that you know the the conquerors had of the the mindset of the of the indigenous people mm, persists mm, doesn't it mm. all the way through yeah so we know it must have been far more complex than uh, what some of these narratives are, are trying to set out so how about how um so we've talked a little bit about how the men are presenting themselves in these myth models let's talk a little bit about how the women were portrayed so particularly for our study Pocahontas um, what, what's going on with her? She's very much portrayed as being very very welcoming there's a sense of sort of romance in the way that John Smith particularly tells the tale of her uh, saving his life when he's about to be executed and you know they're seen as quite compliant mm-hmm. and willing to sort of facilitate the the conquest and the invasion of the of the colonizers, aren't they? Yes, yeah, so so very pliant. And the other thing that Pamela Scully suggests is really important to the myth model is the hypersexualization of these women, um, because that they're somehow ready, willing, able to accept this penetration, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. from these European uh, from European powers. Mm-hmm. So hypersexualization, and it's also a, a way to other these people, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. I think, well, yeah, the, the hypersexuality side sort of stems from that initial sort of European misunderstanding of gender roles, doesn't it, of um, Native American peoples and their attitudes to extramarital or premarital uh, sexual relations. Um, but then particularly in terms of the other thing I was going to talk about um, <laughs> oh yeah particularly this idea of um, the indigenous women being welcoming and compliant it, there's the sort of there's an analogy there with the way in which the actual land mass was represented you see these mm. you see these illustrations don't you of really huge like fruit and these trees with Full of really, um, um, you know, excessive foliage. Yes, all the seeds falling out. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, representing reproduction. Yeah, fecundity. The, you know, Ooh. the idea that <laughs> the idea that the you know this this new world is is fecund and mm. empty and welcoming and ready for you know, like just you ripe, said, ripe, ripe, it's ripe for isn't it? yeah. European penetration. Quite quite literally, but also quite figuratively. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about how the women are portrayed is they're always on the cusp of womanhood. They, they're young girls, aren't they? I wonder why that's important. 
It's interesting, isn't it? I guess there's there's something about the the virginity and the mm-hmm. fecundity mm-hmm. that we sort of mentioned there. Empty vessels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe the the in some kind of transitional stage where they need guidance from these men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I mean, this is sort of thinking you know thinking things to perhaps a too far a conclusion but the idea that you know you you could think of the indigenous peoples themselves in the in the eyes of the european people being almost children Mm. and you know with the european um meeting with them that that sort of brings them into civilization i.e adulthood yeah maturity maturity um but also just the fact that you know all three of these women um, become involved in these sort of foundational myths at you know a sort of liminal age between childhood and adulthood is probably related to the way in which young women, young girls were used in those sort of diplomatic matches that um, societies would make. You know, in order to seal alliances, you would mm. often exchange mm. your uh, you know daughters. Mm. So I guess. In a sort of practical sense, that's perhaps why why these three women are involved, um, particularly Pocahontas and Krotoa. <clears throat> but um, but obviously, then it leads on to all those sort of connotations, mm, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. So you mentioned romance, and I want to come back to that for a moment because the idea of this romantic story uh, plays into the idea of conquest doesn't it that that women had a choice in it that they were consenting what potentially is going on here is whole-scale rape um Mm -hmm. and this idea this heteronormative idea then becomes the only narrative that we ever see these women in so we only ever see pocahontas as this young compliant girl Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm Definitely, definitely. And, you know, there has been sort of revisionist accounts, particularly from um, Virginia Native Americans that, you know, that paint the the Pocahontas narrative entirely in the idea of capture and rape and imprisonment. Mm -hmm. And obviously this, you know, the, the myth that we're dealing with, this foundational myth, is massively oversimplified mm-hmm. and um it's we're talking about the gaps aren't we where mm-hmm. we know about the experience of these these european men who've actually recorded them but we don't we don't know what pocahontas thought yes about her relationship with either john smith or john rolfe or even with her father or yes. her other um her other male relatives or other native american tribes how much how much she positively wanted to um, marry John Rolfe, how much she um, how much she was a pawn in her father's sort of diplomatic games. You know, was she a willing mm. um, sort of spy or ally, or was she, you know, basically used as you know sort of diplomatic collateral, mm. um, which wouldn't necessarily be unusual in relationships between different Native American tribes. Yeah, you know, let alone between Powhatan and the the, uh, the settlers in Virginia. Yes. So there's a complicated dance going on here, isn't there, where maybe parts of it are orchestrated, potentially parts of it aren't. There's lots of ambiguity around consent 
mm-hmm. encounter and exchange. But this myth model then fills in those gaps, doesn't it, and, and becomes the narrative. That's it, and it becomes the narrative. But, you know, it becomes an easier one to deal with, doesn't it, than, oh, you know, we turned up and we stole everyone's land, we killed loads of people and raped the women. Mm-hmm. It's a much easier one of, no, actually, we were welcomed in. Yes. And, you know, the the this, this, this young um, Native American girl uh, found John Smith you know, unbelievably attractive and, and had to save his life because he was so masculine and heroic, mm. you know, perhaps, you know, the implication being perhaps unlike the men of her tribe as well. Um, and you know, it all goes back to that what we're talking about with this, the new world being open and wanting to be colonised and it being a, you know, a willing um, collaboration of the native people mm. rather than what we sort of are more aware that it actually was like. Yes. So Pamela Scully also mentions that in talking about these three elite women, which which they were, uh, we, we miss out on a real understanding of everyday women's lives, the labour exchanges, the sexual exchanges, their power, um, how we actually recover that might be <laughs> quite difficult. Um, but yeah, that's another problem with history, isn't it? You know, we've got our great men of history, and then to a, cert- to a certain extent here, we've got great women of history that are um, masking lots of other stories and other other pasts that we need to recover. So I chose this um, article partly because we'd both already read it, <laughs> and also because it seems so significant that. It's central to the foundation myths of these countries, isn't it? Particularly um, of America, is the discussion of gender and sexuality, how it's manipulated um, at the time and since. Um, And it's really interesting how these women have been claimed. You know, they've become foundational mothers to settler cultures, the Atlantic world, because settlers and their descendants can then claim a stake can't they and say you know my great 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 grandmother was pocahontas so i have claimed this land and so it, it works again doesn't it it's just repeating and it's weird it's weird isn't it um <clears throat> in the i think it's the early 20th century um in Virginia particularly there were um, sort of a strictening of, of racial laws with mm. you know, the Jim Crow era yeah. and who could marry whom and there was there was a um, there was a bid by sort of the the authorities to bring down the categorization of who was black or not to include anyone who, who wasn't white so ie including Native Americans in the in the black, category rather than the white category yes. but then they had to write into that law the Pocahontas clause because so many people claim to be descended from Pocahontas yes and who were you know were quite proud to say that but then were about to be categorized as black yes and didn't want to be well yeah I mean maybe that's agency as well isn't it of, of escaping Jim Crow segregation and discrimination if you were going to be termed as a black person to claim yeah, these people were, you know, convinced that they were white. They had, you know, Pocahontas was probably their only native mm. um, descendant, you know, um, ancestor, you know, probably eight, ten generations ago, even if she was. But, um, 
yeah, they they certainly in a time when to have any sort of non-white blood was seen as being um, uh, undesirable. They were actively sort of trying to claim Pocahontas as as it gave them, like you say, that sort of tie to the land and a claim on on being there um, and you're being rightful owners. You know, at a time when um, African American people, Native American people. Um, were being denied rights, but also you had people coming from all other parts of Europe immigrating into the mm. United States, and people who were, you know, trying to claim themselves as American would, you know, wanted to claim that Pocahontas lineage. Yes. Somehow yeah. there's something fundamentally American about that that there wouldn't be about being African American. Yes. Or you know, Italian American. Yeah. Or... And Pamela Scully, I think, mentions this when she talks about the idea that Pocahontas is seen as one of the the good Indians. And I'm using (laughs) quotation marks there. Um, Because it comes back to this idea about being compliant, doesn't it? And that taking on this gendered, traditional gendered roles of women, they're the the conciliators, they're the nurturers... They're not warlike, um, and it, it's applying those kind of gender traits to good Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, none of this goes away, does it? And of course, we we then had a Disney film that neither of us have seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's too old. I'm too old to see that. But I think I know what it's about. Well, she falls in love with John Smith in that, and marries John Smith. Oh. Which I don't know where that came from. But that's not what John Smith said. But yeah, for a cartoon, she's quite a sexy cartoon as well, isn't she? Well, hypersexuality, uh, you know. It, mm-hmm. Again, none of this has gone away, has it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the connection ju- with nature, I think. I think she has like animal friends. Yeah, I think she does. She talk to them, or they sort of follow her around and help her do stuff. I don't know. But yeah, no, there is that. I don't know. I. I'm not a Native American, but I a sense that the you know the sort of the lack of complexity in her in the way she's stereotyped there and the way she's shown as being close to nature, mm. um, some you know almost sort of lending itself to that the the narratives and the um, the descriptions of Native American people that were placed onto them by the colonizers mm. by the by the invaders. Um, it's probably um, quite offensive mm-hmm. definitely um, definitely not giving the whole sort of story is it of what you know based on what we know it was probably more likely of being like mm. okay well I think should we should we leave it there yeah so, yeah I think um, so so thank you Dr Matthew Stavard thank you Katie not <laughs> <laughs> Dr Matthew Stavard yeah <laughs> yeah that's fine that's, yeah, we all get there in the end we all get there at the end Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.